This episode has been brought to you by our friends over at CMB Law. If you find yourself in a tight spot and you need an attorney to trust, call Courtney over at CMB Law, 941-747-4440 or 941-725-9457. You can also visit her site at cmbjustice.com. CMBJustice.com. Again, that's Courtney at CMB Law. Tell them that Thomas Free Me sent you from the Thomas Free Me podcast show. Hey, everybody. I just want to take a moment to thank all my subscribers and listeners that dedicate a little bit of time just to hear what I got to say. Thank you so much, but the struggle is real and it continues. Please spread awareness. And do your part by making sure that you are subscribed and liking each of the episodes that you listen to. Share my episodes and and spread awareness of my channel and what it is that I'm doing. These things, these little things right here is what helps me grow and helps sponsorship come my way as I am a struggling ex-con. I appreciate the support, the love, and thank you so much for tuning in. More to come. Today's discussion, man, long time coming. I know the listeners have been waiting anxiously. You know, we um, I got tied up in that play. That that was an experience, Tanawa. That was a, that was a real experience for me, man. That was a lifelong experience. Um, I'm gonna do an episode on that. I just want to process a couple little more things and about that whole experience. Good turnout. Good turnout, man. It was a real good turnout. You know, um. We were all we were all happy with with what we did. There were mistakes, but yeah. I think in those mistakes, we kept it moving. I don't think the crowd really realized that there was mistakes, only us. And that's that's the outcome that you want, you know. It, it was good, man. It was it was it was an experience in so many different levels, which I'll break down. But so you know, we had that, and you've been going through a tremendous lot the past couple of weeks. Um, so for the listener, both Tanawa and I greatly uh, appreciate the patience um, on waiting on these things. Uh, we try our best to bring this to you. Of course, you know, by now we both are in tumultuous situations. So we do the best that we can to, to get these out to you because we understand how important it is to get this message out and how important it is for you know, the, the American citizen to, to understand and, and know the constitution. So today we're, we're getting into the fifth amendment, you know, and, and for the past week, I'm asking people, you know, do you know the fifth amendment? Do you know the fifth amendment? Well, that's, that's the right to remain silent, right? The right to remain silent. This is all they know about the fifth amendment partner, the right to remain yeah. silent. You know, we're going to, we're going to teach it because this is, this is 90% of the case that I'm, that I'm bringing forward. And, um, this, this is probably the most important um, amendment when it comes to criminal procedures and, and, and defending uh, yourself. This is, you have to know this. And, uh, and the, the, the very first clause is, uh, is probably the, the biggest item that, that's being used to uh, pursue mass incarceration. I mean, this grand jury issue is massive. It's huge. It's what, it's what allows for the plea bargains to, to occur. It, uh, uh, it allows for um, arbitrary arrest. It allows for innocence to, to, uh, to suffer. It is just uh, it's a horrible practice to not have it. Well, to kick us off, no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury. 
except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia when in actual service in time of war or public danger. Nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Yeah, so so there's six provisions within the, the Fifth Amendment. And they all have to do with the criminal, uh, the criminal procedures and, and the process. So no one has ever been able to actually hammer down exactly what the due process is. You know, it, it just seems like every single court or every single chief justice that comes in, they change it. You know, they have a different uh, impression of what it is. And so when people talk about due process, I don't think that anybody really understands what it is. So let me explain to you the process, okay? So our forefathers, when they were framing the Constitution, they were simple but wise men. And they weren't establishing complex principles or elaborate institutions that only men of rich or educated or noble statuses could understand. You see, they were simply trying to create a legal accounting system which adequately and fairly reconciled the debt owed to society. So if you decide to violate the law, you incur a debt to which you are charged and then called to account so you can pay the debt. Now, these are all very simple accounting terms. Now, the way that debt normally works is if I want to purchase something from a store, a bill will first be generated which I sign and accept. Then my account is charged and I incur debt to which I then have to pay. This is a very simple method for transactions to which anyone can understand. However, if the store charges a person's account without billing them first, that is called fraud. You must always bill before charge is generated. Now, how it applies to this case in the grand jury is that an indictment from a grand jury is called a bill. So absent an indictment, people are being charged fraudulently because they're not being billed first. Now, remember, this issue and this system is a debt-based system. So debt's economics, right? It's not race, it's economics, like I've been saying. So when we deal with economics, obviously, it's going to be an economic system, a, a reconcilement of debt. So, and debt is the, is the basis for all enslavement. Remember, the, the roots of slavery have always been primarily economic. If you owe a debt to someone that you can't pay, you can sell yourself into slavery in order to settle that debt. These are alternative for debt management. So this whole system is built upon a debt-based system, which is an enslavement system, you know? And so if you look at the historical underpins uh, of, of the issue, the issue is absolutely 100% uh, one that's, that's attributed to the slavery institution and, and, to, um, and to business. So, so the reason why it's fraud is because according to the constitution, the, the people are the only ones that can create a tax, right? We didn't want to have, you know, the, the king or the, or the, the, um, the, the judges to be able to incur a tax against the people. It has to be done by the people themselves. So all taxes have to come from the legislative branch, which is the people. So the legislative branch within the courtroom is represented by the jury, right? So absent the jury, the debt is coming from not the people, but rather from the executive uh, branch or, or the uh, judicial branch, which would be branches of, of government that are not authorized to be able to create a debt against society. So the debt has to come from the people. I mean, obviously, it's the people that would decide whether or not you have a debt that's owed to them, right? So that's the reason why it's fraudulent. And, you know, people say it all the time. They say, you know, why is it that, that, that these charges never go away? That once you're a criminal, you're always a criminal, and it's held over your head even when you pay it back and you continue to pay it back over and over and over again throughout your life. Well, the reason why is because 
fraud can be can be uh, proliferated in any in any manner. I mean, it can continually come up because guess what? It's not valid to begin with. Right. And so this whole debt-based system is a, is a is a fraudulent system. The debt itself is actually fraudulent because it's being incurred improperly and incurred by a branch of government that's not legally constituted to be able to to create that debt. So um, that's the most important thing we need to understand. Now, there's a couple concepts that that I want to that I want to just clarify as we go into this. All right, and um, you know these are the way that the ways that I explain these things so that we can all understand them very well. So the first was the actual due process. Right, you must bill before you charge, before you pay or, or create the debt to which you then have to pay. Those are the four elements of the, of the due process. And you have to have these all four and it's consistent with the way that you would have any transaction. So uh, the second is, is that the citizens of the United States have the right to due process of law because the judges in every state have the duty to ensure that those rights are provided, right? Mm-hmm. Now remember, the rights always derive from another's duty to act. Where there's not a duty, then there cannot be a right. So you don't actually have rights until someone else breaches their duty to act. Now, the judges in every state, they are the ones that swear the oath. They're the ones that are bound thereby anything in the Constitution or laws of the state's contrary, notwithstanding. So when a judge enters into his office, he swears an oath that he will that he will abide by and support the Constitution of the United States. So they have the oath that, that, that requires them by law and by um, by obligation to perform those things that are within the Constitution. All right. So when we talk about waiving your rights, you know, why are they not inalienable or why are they inalienable? It's because they cannot be waived, right? Miranda versus Arizona is a great example. Miranda versus Arizona said where rights secured by the Constitution are involved, there can be no rule made which will abrogate them. Now, remember, judges make rulings and the executive branch makes, makes orders, okay? um, but rulings are not laws. They're rulings and they need to be consistent with, with the laws themselves. So people create the laws. The judges are tethered to the actual law itself, the, the affirmative law. And as a result, their rulings must be consistent with the, with the law. So, Which rulings are considered opinions, right? When we hear, when we hear right. a judge's opinion, that's a ruling, correct? That's a ruling. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So, so judges make rulings and rulings do not change the law, right? So when a judge enters into his office, he's got an obligation to do whatever the Constitution says. Even if the state has laws that are contrary he must do what the Constitution says. That's, that's his obligation. And it says, it says clearly that within the Constitution itself. In Article 6, it says the judges in every state shall be bound thereby anything in the Constitution or laws of any state's contrary notwithstanding. So when a judge enters in, he must do those things that's, that's within the Constitution. So when he says to you, you want to give up your right to a grand jury or you want to give up your right to a, a speedy trial or you want to give up your right to a, to a jury trial, you cannot give up that right because before you've given it up, that judge has already breached his duty to ensure that it was provided for you. They don't have the, the yes, sir. So just, just, just for clarification, now that, that constitutional um, uh, uh, amendment that you would, that you, you know, you just quoted, right? Yes. That the constitution, we always have to fall back to the constitution, I guess is the point that I'm trying to make. And we yes. know that. So the reason for that is so that states don't become their own entities, right? We want states to be their own entities, but they're, but to stay within the confines of the constitution that gives this the power to the state to be its own entity. That is but, correct. But like how you just described it is to stop that state from just doing anything that's anti-constitutional. Right. So, you know, we have a union and the union is is made up of 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 a body of laws. Right. And all these states are all 
they all came together and decided that they were going to have um, some sort of a of an agreement, a, a, a agreement of certain social and communal values, right? And that's what that's what we did. So you know, prior to becoming a federal based constitutional republic, um, we were a confederacy. Now, a confederacy are individual sovereign states with a loose central governing structure. That's the same as a, a democracy. So there were three main things, three main issues that existed within this, this confederacy uh, that we needed to, to address. First off, there was no way of requiring the regional governments or the states to implement the laws that were created within the central government, right? So what they did was they created a legislative branch of government, right, which would create the laws, and then they would federate them out to all the regional governments for administration and application. So that would mean that all the laws would be applicable you know, to each one of the states so that we would have continuity among all of the regional governments, right? We wanted all men to be treated equally. And as a result, the only way to be treated equally among all 50 states is that 50 states come together in a representative government, they make the laws together, and they federate them out to their states for, for administration. So the first issue was we didn't have any way of requiring the states to abide by the laws that were made by the federal government, by the central government. So that's why we went and did the legislative branch. But now today, we've got the same issue coming up, right? I mean, when, when I submitted my written allegation to the state of Washington through the district court, the response from Bob Ferguson, the chief uh, legal officer for the state of Washington, said that the Fifth Amendment does not apply to the state of Washington. So we have states that are now picking and choosing once again what they want to implement and not implement, and they're doing it because they believe that they have sovereignty. Well, right? I mean, we just look at, look at what's going on with these, with these vaccinations. I mean, in New York, you know, <laughs> what I do out here every day I can go to jail for it. I can be charged as a crime for it, right? Yeah. If, if I go out somewhere and I walk into a store like I do every day here in Florida with no mask, no vax, no none of that, I would be literally attacked by police officers and hauled off to jail in New York. Right. How is that possible? How are we doing this? It's not. You know, once again, once again, you cannot suspend statutory obligations, right? which is the basis of the, of the Emergency Powers Act. So what they say is that, is that government can suspend statutory obligations. Statutory obligations are statutes that have obligations. Now, a law is nothing more than an obligation, right? I have an obligation to not kill someone. I have an obligation not to speed in my car. I have an obligation to not steal from someone. So a law is nothing more than an obligation. So when you suspend statutory obligations, what you're doing is government is saying, we don't want to follow the obligations that we have. Therefore, we're going to suspend them. Right. Well, the Constitution was not written so that government could take away the rights because that would mean that they weren't rights. That would mean they were privileges and that would mean right. they would come from the government. So the right. forefathers, that don't even they, make sense was, because you're writing something that's going to ultimately defeat yourself. That uh, that's right. that don't even make sense. It, it was not the intention. You cannot alter, amend or destroy the Constitution of the United States without an authentic act to the people in accordance with special amending procedures of Article five. You can't do it. The legislative branch cannot do it. The executive or the executive branch can't do it. The, the judicial branch can't do it. The only ones that can do it are the ones that are uh, that are the contract holders, which are the people of the United States. We are the ones holding the contract, not them. We the people. So, power to the people. Right. And so, you know, the thing is, is that people, we need to wake up and we need to realize that governments cannot take these rights away. They can't do it. They, they can't because that would mean that, that our rights come under no disguise, under no disguise, them saying no. under wartime and all of this. Right. Correct. Right. 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 Because within the Constitution, for instance, in, in Article one, it says that the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended. But then it goes except for in times of war. So 
it says the privilege of writ of habeas corpus. So it recognized that the habeas corpus was a privilege and that it can't be suspended unless in this specific uh, instance, right? Mm. That's the only right that's in there that says that anything can be suspended. And so obviously by the forefathers writing that particular one into the, into the constitution, they were looking at these and saying, we don't want these ones suspended, but this one can be in certain instances. So if they would have written it in, you know, to say freedom of speech can be suspended or freedom of religion can be suspended or these other ones, that would be one thing, but they didn't do it other than for this one instance. So that would be indication that, that they would have never intended for that to happen. They wouldn't exactly. have. Exactly. These were brilliant speak. men. These were visionaries. If they wanted that in there, trust me, this wasn't no slip of the pen. If they no, wanted no, that they, in there, they would have put that in there. They were scared of the, of the central government. I mean, that, that's, that was their fear all along. It's not the people that they were concerned about. It's the, it's the, government. It's the government. And that's what we should be concerned about as well. You know, because Amen. Amen, as long brother. as we're afraid of them, um, they have the power. You know, we can't, we can't fear them because they work for us. They're, they're no different than us. And our rights, you know, there's, there's something that's, uh, that I've come to recognize here in the last few weeks. And that is that when the people are silent, we're giving our consent. We're allowing them to continue to do what they're doing, right? We give our consent by being silent, right? But on the flip side, if government is silent, you know what that means? That means that their indication, it's the indication of guilt, right? Because here's the thing. If I can say the things that I'm saying, if I can use my words and my freedom of speech to say the, the things that I'm saying, I'm saying some pretty, pretty rough things to, some, to a lot of people out there, you know? They can fight with a lot of different, different uh, politicians. But the thing is, is that, is that if I'm able to speak those words and they ignore me and they can't do anything about it, that means that they're guilty of it. Because if I were lying, they could come and they could, they could take me. They could do all kinds of different things in order to get me to stop. They could do a, a slander uh, suit. They could do a libel suit. They could, they could arrest me. There's yeah. any number of different uh, things that they could do if I were telling a lie. But if I'm telling the truth, then guess what? They can't do anything about it because there is no right to self-defense for a judge or a lawmaker. Right? They don't have the right to self-defense. So if I speak those words, those words are protected as long as they're the truth. And that's why the, the, the forefathers and all of the, the, the uh, ancient um, philosophers, that's why they all said that the way to destroy tyrant is through freedom of speech. It's our words. That's all we need to destroy them as long as we're speaking the truth. Right? Right. As long as we're saying the, 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 the accurate things. Our speech is protected. So, Which is why it's so paramount again that I'm, I'm, I'm telling my American citizens that uh, just, just the, the people like tell the truth, tell the truth at right. all costs, tell the yeah. truth. Don't be scared yeah. of your career. Don't be scared yeah. of, of, of repercussions, you know, as, as and I know it's easier said than done, but we are in a time of where they are trying to alter reality. They're trying to rewrite history. They're trying to alter perception. They're trying to alter reality. And the only way out of this, like you said, is with words. And those words have to be absolute truth. Right. But as long as they're truth, then guess what? They can't do anything to stop it. They can't. And so, and so when, when government is silent, that's their indication of guilt. And, and I've come to understand that, 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 you know, the things I'm saying, they can't do anything about it because I'm telling the truth. And if they want well, to- Well, that's the standard court, we're held to, right? Yeah, absolutely. Silence, yeah. silence is an admission of guilt. If I sit up on the stand and I don't answer these people's questions, what do you think they're going to find me guilty of? Gonna, you know, they're going to find me guilty. Right. So, you know, we, we need to understand that our rights cannot be suspended in any instance, because if, if, they can, if they could, then they would not be rights. They would be privileges. Government gives privileges. The Constitution gives rights. So we have the rights, and that right is guaranteed. And if it's guaranteed, 
then a guarantee can only be a guarantee if it's guaranteed all the time. A guarantee cannot only be guaranteed part of the time or only guaranteed until the guarantee is needed because that's not a guarantee, that's a lie. Guarantees are guaranteed all the time. They're not guaranteed in, in, in certain instances and they cannot be suspended. So we need to understand that, right? And, and we just need to know that these things that are being said to us, these rights that are being deprived from us, they are not constitutional. Nobody has right. And so, you know, if you were to read, you know, the books on, on menticide or totalitarianism, you'd see that, that, that this is the exact process that they take to, to get to, to a, a totalitarianism state. It's a, I mean, the process is well known. What, you know, what rights, do, what rights are being specifically attacked up under what we're talking about today? Like what, so what, what we're talking about today. So under the Patriot Act, there's a number of, of rights within the Fifth Amendment. So the right to a speedy trial is thrown out. I mean, it's, it's gone. You know, you don't have a, the, the right to speedy trial because they're locking you up in indefinite period of time under COVID status, right? Um, they have the uh, the grand juries being being waived in a number of different states, and then it's being employed improperly across the entire nation, right? Where they don't allow the accused to be able to come in and confront the accusation. Agreed. You know, that's not in accordance with with the uh, with the with the rules. Um, then uh, the right to uh, to not um, to to not self incriminate that certainly is being is being taken away through every single one of these plea bargain processes, and I'll explain that in a moment. You know, and then the due process itself is being is being uh, is being taken away because they're not following the proper process because they don't understand what the process is. And then we talk about property as a result of or property being taken without just compensation. Listen, I had every single thing stolen from me. Every single thing that I owned was taken from me by them by a swipe of a pen, right? They're taking property without just compensation. They're doing it all. Every single one of these are being are being violated right now. And they're being violated under this auspice of COVID, but they're being violated by a tyrant who is not listening to the will of the people and is doing what he wants to do mm. or the group is doing what they want to do. And, um, you know, we were never supposed to be a democracy. I mean, I've said that a few times. We were always supposed to be a Republican form of government. That's exactly what the constitution says. And I explained the reason why, but we are never supposed to be a democracy, but there are four stages of a, dem of a democracy. The fourth is the final stage. Every single democracy in the history of the world has been destroyed into the fourth phase, which is the tyrant, which is the rule of the mob, the rule of the majority. They come in, they won't listen to the other party or the other group of people, and they just simply impose their will upon it. And it gets to the point where the people are oppressed and they stand up and they say enough and they take their, their, their country back. Every single democracy in the history of the world has been destroyed. And, uh, and, and, it's, and, it's, and I was just talking to somebody about this the other day, man, it's, it's this pendulum effect. You know, it's just this huge pendulum that is just crashing back and forth. And it's just... And, and for me, like we go, we go from, we go from, you know, uh, uh, Clinton to Bush, and then we go from Bush to Obama, then we go from Obama to Trump, then we go from Trump to, to now Biden. And it's like this, this pendulum is just swinging more and more and, and being more damaging on each swing. Yeah. Well, I you think know, that... You know, when, when we talk about mob rule, so so what mob rule is, is, is or the reasons why democratic governments uh, fail is because it is the, the, the a small faction of states or individual states that are imposing their will upon the rest of the nation. So um, I think Thomas Jefferson said, he said that, that, that federalism is not a, a single state or small faction of states imposing their will upon the nation, but instead acting as an aggregate, as an essential buffer between the central government and the people. That's the purpose of the states. And so when you have a state that imposes its will upon the rest of the nation, simply because they have a large number of people, such as California having 40 million people, right? 
those 40 million people feel as though they've got a greater say in, in, in the political process. And so, you know, what happens then is this two-party uh, uh, political um, system that we have right now, you have, you have both, both, uh, both parties represented within the House and the Senate. So uh, when you have a large state such as California, then California is going to have more clout and they're probably going to elect into, into office, you know, the Speaker of the House, for instance. And that Speaker of the House is then going to have an agenda. And that agenda is going to be based upon whatever it is that she wants. And, um, um, and that's going to drive the actual, um, the actual uh, agenda of each one of those Democrats. Is, the, the, the pendulum. Or Republicans that fall underneath them. And so then you have one state that's opposing its will upon the rest of the nation and the rest of the party affiliates all having to follow and fall in line with that, 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 one, single, that one single member. And so, you know, with this two-party process, like I said, you don't have, you know, uh, Louisiana coming and saying, okay, this is what Louisiana needs. No, they're going to come in and they're going to side with whoever the, the, the high majority leader is and whatever they want, they have to fall in line. And, and they're just going to fall in and like, like the runt of the, the pack. And, that's and again, that's, that's it. It's just this pendulum swinging back and forth each time the yeah. power shifts, you know, and right. it's, and it's the small states like <clears throat> Louisiana you know, Mississippi, things of that nature that is just sitting there waiting for scraps, right. you know. And they have no say because, unfortunately, they don't have the, the, the population. And so they don't have the, the power that, say, California or New York has. And so, you know, those high positions within the House and the Senate, they're going to be given to those to those higher population locations, those higher. Those higher uh, or their population is looked upon as, as less significant as another. Which is the big difference between Republican and Democratic form of government? Democratic, all persons participate in the uh, in the political process. Every single vote counts equally. And then with the Republican form of government, we have a representative government that we elect, we send there, and each one of the representatives have got equal uh, representation. Each state has two senators, equal representation. So each state will have an equal say in 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 the in the political process in in a perfect world. But when you have a two party process like we do, or two party system like, like we do today. Then you have each one of these political um, individuals that are having to fall in line with, you know, whoever whoever the most powerful is within their within their party, and do whatever they want. And so, you know, we don't have the individual states that are um, declaring what they need or, or want because we don't have politicians that are that are willing to do that, that are willing to step out and, and say what they need. So, um, so this uh, this the, the Fifth Amendment is is extremely important. So. The very first one is, is the grand jury clause. So no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on the presentment or indictment of a grand jury. Okay. So grand jury is, is a, the jury itself is actually a two-part process. The first part is the grand jury. And the second part is the pettit jury. Okay. So the pettit jury is the one that we're most, we're most used to. It's you know, 12 jurors that, that you would have a, in most cases, a unanimous decision. In the case of a grand jury, it's 16 to 23 people, and they're impaneled to do nothing but determine whether or not there's probable cause to assume that a crime has been committed. So what they do is they actually receive the allegation, right? So they would receive the allegation, they would listen to the to the allegation or the, or the accusation, and then they would listen to, you know, the uh, uh, the accused to be able to cross-examine and, and be able to bring up their own uh, defense uh, against the accusation. And then they would determine whether or not there's sufficient probable cause to order the arrest of the individual. Without an indictment by a grand jury, no one is supposed to be arrested, right? No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless in the presentment or indictment of a grand jury. You are not to be arrested until there's an indictment by a grand jury. 
right? You're, you're walking off the street because we talk about it all the time. We're like, why is it that I don't feel as though I'm, I'm innocent until proven guilty? Why is it that I'm guilty until proven innocent? It's, it's opposite. That's because we're missing the very first step. And the very first step is you don't go and arrest someone. No, you give them an opportunity to come in as a free man off the street, present the, the, the counter accusation and to be able to defend themselves against this accuser, right? So the grand jury is actually the primary defense against the hasty or malicious charges. It is the innocence um, uh, greatest defense, right? And it's well known to be that. So there are two crimes is that it- are specifically listed there. A capital crime, which is any crime punishable by a death that results in a death, okay? Now, an infamous crime is any crime punishable by more than one year imprisonment in a penitentiary. So as long as it's over one year, it is, in fact, an infamous crime. Now, United States versus Coachman came out and said that it's not the amount of time that you get sentenced to, but the amount of time that you can be sentenced to. So if you get sentenced to six months, but you could have gotten five years, it is still an infamous crime, okay? Now, a lot of people talk about infamous crime, and they, they assume that it's hard labor. That's not necessarily true. Any time that you're sentenced to prison for a year and a day, anything greater than a year, then you you are, in fact, in an infamous crime. So you cannot be charged for that infamous crime un- until there's an, an indictment or a presentment to a grand jury. So, um, Question. Once again, go ahead. So is it fair to say, Tanawal, that the grand jury is essentially in place? Is the grand jury in place or was it intended to be in place for our representation that we the people so that when charges are brought that they're supposed to actually represent us to make sure that the prosecutor isn't bringing any overzealousness um any any but but that is definitely not the case today right yeah so absolutely so you know the the whole point in it was to was to have an independent third party review the the uh the allegations right so you know what's happening today, and a lot of this, a lot of this is uh, is coming from um, from you know the Guantanamo Bay area because I, I've mentioned that a number of times. But mm-hmm. um, if you look at what was going on with Guantanamo Bay, you had an individual that was that was picked up based upon some allegation. He's an enemy combatant. They would go and they would arrest him. They bring him back to Guantanamo Bay, and then they 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 house him there and put him through these tactics and everything else and get him to admit that they were guilty. And then once he did, then they would bring him in front of a single JAG officer who would then declare them guilty. And that's that. That's the whole process. These guys, all they wanted was a trial by jury. They were demanding that they have that, and it wasn't being given to them. Now, if that process sounds familiar to you, that is the exact same process that we use every single day across the United States called the plea bargain process. Okay. So the, the, the thing is, is that if I were to call up the, the police and I were to say, this happened to me, the police would take that information. And based upon that information, they would then go and arrest the individual that, that the allegation is against, right? They'd probably go to the prosecutor, and the prosecutor would then say, yeah, there's sufficient probable cause. Go make the arrest, right? Um, but the reality is, is that there's no com- confirmation of the, 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 true, the truthfulness of that particular information that they're receiving. That has to occur. We have to do that because there's all kinds of allegations that occur that are, that are, that are frivolous, that are, that are um, intended for, for malice or, or not even a crime at all. And so, you know, we need this process in place because what's happening is that these prosecutors – they're taking that information and then they're using it as an opportunity to be able to bump their numbers up, right? And so in a lot of states where they don't where they don't have a grand jury at all, then that means that the prosecutor is responsible for determining all of the charges that's against the individual. And yeah, like that's, I said, that's, that's, that's freaking nice. That, like that's, that's, I mean, that's, I mean, that is, that is, that's dangerous. Yeah. 
You so, know what I mean? That's dangerous, man. So the 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 forefathers, one of the one of the things that they were that they were most concerned about that they were dealing with was what was called a trial by affidavit, right? So a trial by affidavit is absolutely unconstitutional, okay? An affidavit is 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 information that you're receiving. You receive this complaint from an individual, and now you take them to trial based upon this complaint. You cannot have a trial by affidavit, but that's exactly what's happening. Like here in the state of Washington, they charge you based upon what's called information. There's three ways to charge individuals. There is a presentment to a, to a grand jury. There's an indictment from a grand jury, and there is information. But according to the law, information can only be used for non-infamous crimes. Okay, so it can only be used for misdemeanors, anything less than a year. So, uh, but anything over that, it has to be an indicted by a grand jury. And the reason why is because the grand jury is the independent uh, fact checker, right? So you've got the the state of Washington that becomes your accuser, right? Because it's state of Washington versus John Smith, right? That that becomes the party. Now, who works for the state of Washington? Well, the judge does. The prosecutor does, the investigators do, the, the, the people that are going to house you and take you in, into prison, and then the state benefits from your involuntary servitude on top of that. It's a major conflict of interest that exists, and that's why in Article 3 of the Constitution, it says in all cases in which a state shall be party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction. Anytime the state becomes a party in any cause whatsoever, it loses its ability to be able to act as a neutral, unbiased judge. And as a result, they must recuse themselves, the judge himself, because the judge is the one that swore the oath. That judge has a duty and obligation to recuse himself because of the conflict of interest that exists. No judge can sit in and, and judge in a, a case if their if their master the, or their employer is in fact the, the accuser. It, it can't do it. And so you know, the Federalist Number 10, written by James Madison, what he said is, he said, no man is allowed to be judged in his own cause because his interest would no doubt bias his judgment and not improbably corrupt his integrity. With equal, nay, with greater reason, a body of men are unfit to be both judge and party at the same time. The state of Washington is made up of a body of men, right? That body of men cannot be both judge and accuser at the same time or else innocence will suffer. That, that, that prosecutor that prosecutor has an invested interest in winning the case because their employer has taken up the case as the party in it. So the problem with information is when you accept information in, that, that prosecutor is going to be biased and going to be, impart and going to be partial. And the reality is, is that prosecutors, they have a degree in, in, in adjudication, which means that they don't even know what in fact makes a, cr a, a crime a crime. They don't know the criminal elements. They have the wrong degree. The degree that should be there should be a criminologist to, to determine was it was a crime even committed? Who was was their mens rea? Do they have a guilty mind? You know what was the body? That, they need to know those things because the, a, a prosecutor having a juris doctorate is simply in the in the business of making slaves. That's all they do. They they find they make a criminal, and as a result, that individual doesn't 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 have the ability to investigate it. And when you have a prosecutor being the highest law enforcement officer within the county but yet they have no knowledge of law enforcement or investigation, then we get a whole bunch of charges that are just thrown at them, right? Like they're doing. They charge load constantly. So you, you may have an assault two or assault three, but they'll charge you with assault one. And they'll charge you with assault one with a deadly weapon because you've got a shoelace on, right? I mean, all kinds of just absurd things that they'll do in order to create the pressure to force you into pleading guilty to whatever it is that they want, right? Sure. And that's what they do. 
But if you had this independent fact checker, you had this neutral, unbiased third party, what would happen is, is that they would say, no, you're not going to charge for assault one. And no, you're not going to charge for uh, assault with a deadly weapon because that there's no probable cause for that. And they would actually come out with these specific charges that they feel as though would be applicable to this instance. And as a result of that, then, then you can go in and negotiate and you right. can actually have the ability to negotiate if you would want to, to, to negotiate. But the reality is, is that you can't negotiate when they come in with, with arbitrary charges. They can't, they, you, you can't charge load and, and do these things and, and be able to have any sort of advantage in, in, the, um, in, the, um, in the process. So they have sure. all the advantage. To share something with you, you know, the writer of the play that I was just in, um, come to find out we had a talk back, you know, uh, Sunday, Sunday evening with the writer and, and, and whatnot. And come to find out he was a prosecutor. He was a prosecutor for four years. And of course, as soon as I heard that T, like my my free me podcast went in the overdrive like oh okay so you're a prosecutor huh? okay well what how do you feel about prosecutorial misconduct how do you feel about what's going on in america what's and the, the look that this dude gave me but what was more important right was his response okay because his response is the prosecutorial mindset that i'm trying to enlighten america about why why our visionaries understood how a prosecutorial mindset works. And we were trying to block that as much as we could because of the power that the prosecutor wields. But his, his, his answer was exactly that. Prosecutors have the toughest job in the world. They have to decipher, you know, the, that, you know, these guys are heroes essentially is what he's saying, because we're the ones that are preventing the crime. It, it was just, glorification to the extreme of the prosecutorial right. mindset and, and, and that's unfortunately that that's the way that the that the image is, has been built that's the way that this whole tower of justice has been built here in america is that you know we've taken something and, and and what we call good is really not good right they're the ones that are they're causing this conflict and they're the ones that are causing these issues i mean you know here in the state of washington it's the prosecutor that determines the charges that, that are that are going to be filed against you it's not a neutral and biased party. It's not a grand jury. So they receive the information. And the moment they receive the information, guess what? They become the, the attorney for this individual, right? They immediately take it on. And they're now this, this individual's attorney. And so, you know, you have the state who employs them, who is now vested interest in, in, in your opposition without even coming and talking to you, without even getting your side of the story. They don't care. It has no merit because they only want to win their case. But you know, That's right. Well, let me make one final point yeah. about this play right at the end of it. The lieutenant says something to the father right at the end. Again, a, another very, very relevant. And I think that this writer put that in there as a sense of, again, glorification on, on the prosecutor. Now that I know that he was a prosecutor, a lot of things make sense. But at the end, as the father is being let off in handcuffs, his his quote is, you know, you'll be hearing from my attorney. And the lieutenant says, and you'll be hearing from mine. Mine is the state, you know, mine is the state prosecutor. Who's yours? And that in itself is, again, the power statement behind that. You know what I mean? That it's irrelevant who your attorney is. Mine is the, the prosecutor, the state. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. And it, it's just, it's, it's, I, I cannot 
I cannot be explicit enough on the perniciousness of the prosecutorial mind and how you are laying out the just the vastness of authority that they're allowed to have in our freedom. This is the root of the problems in America is the prosecutor, is the the amount of freedom that they have to do whatever they want to do. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's why that's why the criminal procedure manual, it says right in it, it says that most prosecutors across the United States agree that as much as 15 percent of the people in prison are innocent. But that's an acceptable deviance because our system isn't perfect. Right? Collateral damage. These are people that are just they don't care. Right. When 98 percent of all of, of all convictions come by way of plea bargain, that's 98 percent of all uh, of all defendants that don't get to tell their side of the story. Well, why don't they get to do it? Because of the pressure that's being placed upon them, because the prosecutor only cares about winning, right? You have got to have a neutral, unbiased third party or a neutral, unbiased individual in the prosecutor position to be able to assess the situation. A prosecutor's job is not to win a case. A prosecutor's job is to determine is determine guilt and innocence, is to determine the truth. That's their job. And if the truth is that this individual that told me this accusation is wrong, then so be it. But the investigation should, should lead you to that. You don't come in and just say, here's the information. I'm going to accept it and as truth and, and go about your business as though it's truth. Because, and this is the big issue with, with, a, with a trial by affidavit. In the case of a trial by affidavit, if we have the right to confront our accusers, how do you put that information on the stand and cross-examine it? Your right mm. to Sixth Amendment, to the right of, 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 of uh, confronting your, your accusers, it evaporates with the use of trial by, by affidavit. So there's no validity as to the accurate or truthfulness of that of that accusation the moment mm. that the prosecutor receives it and 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 uh and reports it it charges you based on this information that information is truth you can't you can't argue with it you can't change it it is truth because it's never been validated but we don't know if it's truth but it's treated it treated as such the moment that you're charged with it because you can't you can't argue with it you can't change it you can't put it on the stand and cross-examine it you can't catch it in a lie it's it's, it is what it is. And, you know, I had the defense attorneys telling me that same thing. They're like, you have to plead guilty to this because they have the information on you. At the time, I didn't understand what that meant. And I'm like, why? You know? So she said I did something. What, what, di- what difference does that make? You know, well, that's, that's the whole thing about it is that somebody can make an accusation. See, see how I understand you breaking the process down is that somebody can make an accusation and a case is being built against you without you even being aware. Like, they can have an they could have you under investigation for years and you not even know because of this original accusation but because that the way the system is designed now how it's being outlined now is is that and and you're talking about in a state with no grand jury the prosecutor can just open an investigation on anybody that they want at any time you know what i mean and and you're not even being aware that you're being followed that you're being watched that you're being monitored that evidence is being collected against you you know what right. I mean? So right. a case is being built against you. This is this again is the guilty until proven innocent. A right. case of guilt is being built against you without you even being able to defend the original accusation, right? That allowed right. this case to be built against you. So right. this case is being built against you without you being aware. And now you're drug into court, right? And now you're charged with this case that the prosecutor had who knows how much time to prepare against you, right? right. 
And now you're made to, to make a, a split second decision on guilt or innocence, right? And, and, you will, and you're just now really becoming aware of this case. It's, it's, that's why I say the unfairness of it. This is how we are guilty until we are proven innocent. Because now I'm in there in front of this judge. Everybody in the courtroom knows what's going on but me. You know what I mean? The yep. judge already knows what's going on with this case. Everybody knows what's going on with this case but me. Right. And now I'm sitting in here and I'm trying to, okay, guilty, not guilty. I got this prosecutor in my, in my face throwing 15 charges at me, telling me that if, if I don't plea out to, to these three charges, they're going to make all 15 of them stick and it's going to be punishable right. to 45 years in life. You know what I mean? Right. And the, these yeah. are the pressures. We're so, knocked off our square immediately, and, and we can never critically think because we're constantly bombarded with emotions and fear and, and all of these, these psychological games that they play from day one. Like I tell people, T, from, from the moment you come in contact with a government worker, you are under a psychological attack. From right. the moment, the way they walk up on you, the way they position around you, the way they talk to you, you are under psychological yep. attack from start to finish right. with these people right yeah it, it, it's an act of fear that you know that's the hard uniforms it's the guns it's all of that together it is designed to to create fear you know and uh once you get into the system itself you know we're talking post-traumatic stress that, that exists i mean you know i had it myself i had no idea what, what what it was until i went to prison and you know coming out of it you know having to go back into a courtroom to to start doing this this litigation it was scary you know, and, and I, I had it because the last time I was in the courtroom, you know, I was taken off in handcuffs for doing nothing. My wife said that I didn't do anything. I mean, you know, it was absolutely nuts. And so there's, it's designed to be that way. It wants to create this fear because it, it wants to push the people to the, to the outskirts. It wants to, to keep them in a subservient state of, of slavery. I mean, that's what slavery was always about. You know, the slave owner would, would threaten, intimidate and create fear in the slaves to keep them from rebelling or rising up. Right. So, you know, the history is just going to repeat itself. And that's the same thing that's going on. But um, but, you know, there's there's a couple issues with, with the grand jury and, and they're all equal protection. So one, you, you mentioned that you're guilty until proven innocent. That's what's called an irrebutable presumption of guilt. OK. And it's 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 illegal. It's it's unconstitutional. Not only is it unconstitutional, but it's a violation of of international human rights standards. And so an irrebutable presumption of guilt is the is the assumption that you're guilty based upon the mere fact of a charge. So simply that being charged with an offense, if you're assumed to be guilty based upon that, then that would be an irrebutable presumption of guilt. Now, the thing is, is that these states that, that, that don't have a grand jury at all, they don't come and talk to you. They receive the information, they go and arrest you, they bring you in and they're charged you with a crime. That is an irrebutable presumption of guilt because they've never confirmed the act of the accusation. I, I'm assumed guilty the moment that they came and arrested you because, right. you know, said people don't get arrested, right? Now, on those states that don't allow the individual in, it's the same thing that's happening. Because if you don't allow the accused to be able to come in and confront the accusation, it's no different than not having one at all. Because the only side of the story that gets told is the side that the prosecutor wants to tell, right? So the right. prosecutor, once again, can do anything they want. They can push whatever because they can bring in uh, um, information that, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's not, not even admissible in, in a trial, you know? And so... Um, they can bring in hearsay evidence and present that, and there's not even anyone there to confront the, the accusation. There's the individual isn't, nor is the individual's attorney. 
So it's no different than not having one at all. And the, the icing on the cake is that their word carries more weight than, than yours because right. you are presumed to be guilty. Right. And so once again, you know, if they receive this information from the accuser and then they present it to the grand jury, but the accuser is not able to confront that, that information, whatever that accuser says is, is truth. That grand jury accepts it as truth and it becomes truth. And you can't, you can't counter truth. It could be nothing but a, a fraudulent lie, but the reality is, is, is it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't show that it doesn't become that because there's no opportunity for, for the accused to be able to confront those accusations. And so the whole process is wrong, but it's wrong because, because of this case from 1833, Barron versus Baltimore, and, and the grand jury's never been required to, to apply to states. And so, you know, once again, though, the states cannot alter, amend, or destroy the Constitution of the United States. The states cannot substitute their own alternative legislation for the provisions and guarantees of the Constitution. That would be unconstitutional. That's why the judges in every state are bound thereby anything in the Constitution or laws of any states contrary notwithstanding. It doesn't matter what the state of Washington says. The state of Washington can say, we don't do this, but that judge is bound by obligation and oath to do it anyway. It's their job. So, like I say, the, 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 um, the citizens of the United States have the right to due process of law because the judges in every state have the duty to ensure that those rights are provided. So when they don't provide those rights because the state of Washington says to do something different, great. That still is unconstitutional because the state has no right to be able to substitute its own alternative legislation for the provisions guarantees the Constitution. Now, there's one last uh, concept that I, that I want to bring up, and that is that when we talk about discretion, right, discretion is the ability to, um, to choose to do or not do something, right? It's, it, you can apply your own thinking to choose to do or not do something. Yeah. So, so rights that are defined affirmatively and applied statutorily are not discretionary. This is very, very, very important, okay? So rights that are defined affirmatively and applied statutorily are not discretionary. So affirmatively would be in a written form. So anytime a right is written in a, in a written form, it would be an affirmative right. So rights that are defined affirmatively and applied statutorily, they're applied statutorily through the oath, through the, through the legal ramification of that individual requiring himself to or, or obligating himself to do what the Constitution says. So when their rights are defined affirmatively and applied statutorily, they are not discretionary. So that mm -hmm. judge does not have the right to be able to say, I'm not going to give this person this right that he's entitled to, because, of course, that would be a violation of his oath. Right. He's bound there by anything in the Constitution or laws of the state's country notwithstanding. Rules don't change laws. Laws are made by the people. Rules must be consistent with those laws. If the rules or the rulings from judges are not consistent with the Constitution or the laws, then guess what? They are unconstitutional because judges are tethered to positive affirmative law. So the other main issue with the grand jury is this. These states, every single one of the states that, that have the grand jury and even the ones that don't, what they say is they say that, that the prosecutor has the discretion to use the, 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 the grand jury or not. So in a high-profile case, they may use the grand jury, right? Or they may allow the accuser to, to come in in a high-profile case, but they don't in other ones. But regardless of how you look at it, regardless of whether they've ever done it, that is an equal protection issue because what it does is it allows for that prosecutor to decide who gets a right and who doesn't get a right. That's the way that that law is written. And if that's the case, regardless of whether they do it or not, that is an unconstitutional law because it does not provide equal protection. Every single citizen must be treated equally because according to John Locke and, and, and Rousseau, in order for laws to be legitimate, they must be considered just and equal. If they are not just and equal, they are not a legitimate law. 
So any law that says that the, that the prosecutor has the ability to apply discretion, which is the, the, the state versus Bradley, I think it is, that, that allows for the absence of the grand jury. It says that, it says that prosecutors are able to, um, to, to um, charge by information or indictment as, um, as required by law, I think is basically what it says. And so when a prosecutor has the ability to, to decide whether or not to give this person indictment or information, it is an equal protection issue. That is not a legitimate law. It's not valid uh, at all. And so you can't take it away. But the other issue is this. The judges themselves are responsible for ensuring that the process is done. The prosecutors are responsible for charging for the offenses. So now you have the prosecutor who's charging with the wrong instrument. They're actually charging with information as opposed to indictment. And in doing so, they are the ones that are, that are, that are, that are causing the failure. The judges then are taking that information and without knowing that they're supposed to have an indictment, they're just simply saying, okay, great, we'll accept this. So it's the prosecutor itself, it's the executive branch is actually putting the judicial branch into trouble right now. They're pitted against each other because the judicial branch is now responsible for the, for the um, executive branch or the prosecutor's failure to charge with the proper instrument. Now, I'm, so I, I'm sitting here reading, right? And it says, like, like it says right here, while state legislators may set the statutory number of grand juries anywhere within the common law requirement of 12 to 23, statutes setting the number outside of this range violate the Fifth Amendment. Federal law has set the federal grand jury number as falling between 16 and 23. Now, this is what it says. A person being charged with a crime that warrants a grand jury has the right to challenge members of the grand jury for partiality or bias, but these challenges differ from preemptory challenges, which a defendant has when choosing a trial jury. Right. You have the right to attend that grand jury. You always did. So there's a case from 1887 called Hurtado versus California. Now, before you before you start this right here, let me just say this. They told me at my federal trial that I was not privy to the grand jury, my grand jury transcripts. And that was something that I had to ask for before trial. And if you don't ask for this before trial, you're never able to get them. So this is what was told to me by a judge. It's not true. Yeah. I mean, so. This information that, that they're putting forward, um, they're, they're good liars, you know, and, uh, and they're going to do whatever they have to do. They're going to say whatever they have to say in order to, to get you to, to do what they want you to do. It's, it's manip manipulation is best. And, and uh, you know, unfortunately, if you don't know your rights, then you have no rights. You know, if, you're, if you don't know that you, that, you can, that you have a right to do something, then you're going to be silent. You're going to listen to what this judge says or listen to what this, this uh, defense attorney says, and you're going to say that you, that you accept it accepted at face value and unfortunately these are people that are involved in the process of making you into a slave this is what they want to do this is their this is their desire is there can i get my grand jury testimony now absolutely you can i want you absolutely. to help me with that t because i want to know how these people indicted me because the all the evidence they had against me came from my co-conspirators who we were all indicted at the same time so how did you indict me the thing is, is, is how can you defend yourself if you don't have access to the accusation? You have to have access I've to the accusation. I never saw it. Never. Yeah. And, and, and they wouldn't want you to because, because 
It's because amazing. the hearsay elements that's that's defined within there, the things that 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 made that grand jury say, "Oh, this is this is you know what happened," you know, you would be able to attack that. You'd be able to say, "How did that prosecutor say that I did this?" That prosecutor didn't know, but that would be some sort of statement, some sort of hearsay, arbitrary statement that would be made based upon an affidavit from someone else. Well, that that prosecutor is not your accuser. They're not the ones. They weren't firsthand. A witness to it. They're simply relaying information from someone else, but they're taking that information from someone else and presenting it to the jury as though they're the firsthand uh, witness to it. And, you know, so whatever they, whatever they said to the jury, you know, you would be able to attack that and target that and say, how do they know? They, they, you know, this, this is their process. They don't want you to do it. But <clears throat> the thing is, is like, um, you know, a lot of, uh, I, I've asked this question many times. Why is it that during a trial, you don't bring in and use constitutional law, right? If the constitution is what guarantees my freedom, why am I not using it during a trial, right? I mean, you don't use it anywhere within the state. The state will laugh you out of the courtroom if you if you start talking constitutional law. Right. I mean, well, I had a- We're, we're had a, turning to watershed opinions. Right. Well, so so we don't use the, the guarantor of our freedom and our liberty and our rights as the basis to defend ourselves when they're trying to take away our rights. We should be going to the Constitution. That should be exactly what we should be using to defend ourselves every single day in a courtroom. And if your defense attorney is coming in and saying, oh, procedural elements, well, forget procedural. Go to the Constitution. Hmm. That's what you should be using to defend yourself. But you will never, ever, ever hear a state attorney or a defense attorney use Constitution as a defense. They don't, they don't do it. They don't want to. You know, they're, they're here and they're bound by state laws and they're trying to get us to be bound by state laws as well. And you become bound by state laws when you when you accept a plea bargain, when you get married, when you go through a, a divorce, when you you know are adopted. Those all change your legal relationship with the state. As a free man, you are not bound and accountable to state laws. State laws don't apply to you. The only thing that applies to you as a free you know as a free citizen or free person is the Constitution of the United States, the laws of the United States. No matter where within jurisdictional United States you reside, you're only bound and accountable to those laws. And most importantly, only the Constitution, because if the laws of the United States are contrary to the Constitution, then they themselves are not constitutional. Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, you don't become accountable to state laws until you change your legal relationship with the state. It's a contractual relationship. That's all that, that's all that, that, that uh, a plea bargain is or a, or a guilty um, verdict is. It is a contract, and it changes your legal relationship with the state, and you are now accountable to state laws. Prior to that, you're not. But the ones that are bound and accountable to state laws are the ones practicing law within the state, the judges, the attorneys, the prosecutors, they're all bound by state laws and they want to get everybody bound by them because they work for them. Are you, um, do you still want to go into, into the, the grand jury more? Do you have more on the grand jury or do you want to move into double jeopardy? Pretty good on on grand jury. It's, it's just, it's most important that we remember you guys are entitled to it. This is the, the, the primary um, mechanism that's used to to protect the innocent from hasty malicious charges. That's the whole purpose of it. The innocence does not suffer if you're treated as though you're innocent until proven guilty, right? And you do that by by allowing both parties to talk. You know, so the purpose of the states, again, according to Thomas Jefferson, is that the states are not to impose their will upon the nation, but to act as an aggregate or an essential buffer between the central government and the people. They're to act as that neutral and biased third party. The, the judge is to be neutral, and the way that they, that they remain neutral is by not taking a side in the case. They have to be neutral, which allows for, you know, the accuser to come in, the accused to come in, 
to be able to present their 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 accusation, the counter counter argument, to be able to defend, to defend themselves without the state taking a side with one or the other. So the states can't do that. And so when they do, according to the Constitution, they no longer have personal jurisdiction. It is now the exclusive duty, responsibility of the United States Supreme Court to uh, adjudicate that offense anytime the state has become party. So that's where we're seeing all these issues. The prosecutors, they're coming in, they're charging whatever they want to charge. They're using that pressure in order to force, intimidate, threaten witnesses into pleading guilty to whatever it is that they want. There's no validation of the, of the accusation. And your Sixth Amendment right to be able to confront your accuser evaporates because you cannot put information on the stand and cross-examine it. This was precisely the greatest fear that the forefathers had when they were building our Constitution and our laws. It is a trial by affidavit, the ability to bring arbitrary charges against an innocent person simply because they don't like you or they don't like what you have to say. Yeah, yeah. Do you, um, are you okay? Or do you want to take a, a, a quick five-minute break, recollect, move into double jeopardy? Could we move into a, in, uh, yeah, take a break, please. Uh, let me go grab another cup of coffee. So, uh, or however your format is. I, I definitely want to hit number three. So, so one and three, which are self-incrimination clause and grand jury, those are the two biggest ones that, that I that I want to hit within. Uh, those are the ones that apply to the case. That those those are the greatest mechanisms that are dealing with the plea bargain issue. Okay. You know, so I. Uh, I want to touch double jeopardy um, on the fact of yeah. uh, kind of what we see going on in um, this this Ahmad Arbery case, yeah. and so many cases that I see uh, with with so many individuals in prison again as now because we deal with two different entities, right? We're dealing right. with two different entities. We're dealing with a federal government and a state government, and they're coming in and charging you with the same crime. And you're going to prison and you're, you know, it's, it's two different circumstances for the same crime. Yeah, and know? once again, that, that's not, that's not constitutional, but I, I, I do want to explain, you know, when, when we get into the double jeopardy there, I want to explain the correct structure of, of our government where there's not supposed to be a federal justice system. The constitution doesn't make any mention whatsoever. This is new. The federal government having a justice system. The states were to have the justice system. That's why Article 3 says the trial of all crimes, with the exception of impeachment, shall be by jury, and the trial shall occur in the state where which the crime is said to be committed. And that doesn't say anything about the federal government having its own justice system. If and you the go back, why, the go reason ahead, why finish, is I'm sorry. The, the laws were supposed to be made by the central government, right? The representative government from all the regional governments, they were to go there and to create the laws. That's why Article 1 says that all legislative power is vested in the Congress of the United States. All legislative powers. All laws were to be made by the central government and federated out to the states for administration. That means that every single person is treated equally, no matter where within the jurisdiction of the United States they choose to reside, because the laws will all be the same, right? And so that's the way it was supposed to be. That's the way it was always supposed to be, but we didn't have that. We had these states coming in and saying, we're sovereign, we're, we're independent, we're going to create our own laws, and that is a confederacy. That is a democratic government. That is not a Republican form of government. So the way it's supposed to be is the representative government were to come in, they were to create the laws. They were to send them out to the, to the states for adjudication, right, or for administration. And so when you violate the law, the state would then be neutral and unbiased because the laws were not the states. They weren't, they weren't, it wasn't in their interest. So the central government itself would be the accuser, right? The United States of America would be the accuser, and the state would then be the neutral, unbiased judge. And they could investigate unbiased. They could, they could do all these things, uh, prosecute unbiased. They could do these things that way. But... That would be the, the neutral and biased party. The, the state was meant to be nothing more than the buffer between the central government and the people. 
That's the way it was supposed to be. And so that's why it says that in all cases in which a state shall be party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction. Because the forefathers said, well, if the states become a party in it because they make their own laws or they become a party in it because you know they have a, an interest in, in pursuing this, uh, this offense with this individual, then we have to have a new neutral and unbiased third party. And they couldn't go with the district courts because the federal district courts, because those judges elevate out of the state. So they would still have state preferences, prejudices. So they said the only court that would be able to act neutral and unbiased if a state became a party would be the Supreme Court of the United States. This is the only one that, that would be able to do that. So if you look at the structure, right, the state was to be the judge. The central government was to be the accuser, right, and the, and the laws against them. And so that would be the separation of powers between the two. And if you flipped it, then and the state became the accuser, then the federal government would then have to be the, the neutral and biased judge. So in the case of a federal government having its own its own justice system, where is the buffer? Right. There Where's is the none. buffer? Where's and, the buffer? And when you There's go back buffer. and you research, when you go back and you research federal cases prior to mafioso, right, and, and Giuliani and everything that was going on back then, prior to that, all cases that you find in the feds is all maritime. It's all naval. It has yeah. nothing to do with land. It has nothing to do with crime. It's all, it's just maritime law.